everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. In today's episode of the Luke 5020 plan, we're diving into the start of Luke chapter 5. We'll meet the first disciples, and we'll also see Jesus cleanse a leper. So let's go. We'll start by reading the first 11 verses in chapter 5 together. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. As usual, before we start digging deep into the text, let's zoom out to see what's happening here. Jesus is standing by a lake, and the crowd is pressing in on him because they want to hear God's word. Jesus sees a couple of boats along the water's edge, as well as the fishermen they belong to. Jesus gets into Simon's boat and asks Simon to put out a little distance from the land. They do so, and Jesus teaches the crowds from Simon's boat. Then Jesus finishes teaching and turns his attention to Simon. He tells Simon to go out into deeper water now and to try to fish again. Simon, presumably frustrated after a night of catching no fish, says, Master, we've already tried that, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. They, meaning not just Simon, but whoever else was in Simon's boat, which would include Simon's brother Andrew, let down the nets like Jesus says, and they catch so many fish that the nets start to break. And now they're signaling the other boat with their other fishing partners, who happen to be James and John, to come and help. And they fill both boats to the brim so full they start to sink. Everyone is amazed at what's happened, causing Simon to fall before Jesus and say, Lord, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says this famous line, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Or, other translations say, fishing for men. Then Simon, Andrew, James, and John bring the boats to shore, leave everything, and follow Jesus. Alright, so here we are. In Luke's account, this is our first encounter with the first four of Jesus' twelve disciples. And we're kicking things off with a pretty intense miracle full of layers and depth. We start with this crowd at the lake. It's not clear if Jesus was trying to catch some alone time, or if he intended for the crowd to meet him there, but here we are anyway. 
This crowd is desperate to hear the word of God, so much so that you might say they've lost any sense of decorum as they are literally pressing in on him and crowding him. I don't know about you, but I get pretty overwhelmed in crowds like that, where I feel like I can't move safely or where my personal space is totally lost. I don't know what Jesus is feeling here, but we do know what he does. He sees Simon, Andrew, James, and John and their boats. They've just finished a long night of fruitless fishing, and they're washing their nets. Jesus decides to take over Simon and Andrew's boat and asks Simon to push out a little way from the shore. Jesus decides to give the people what they want, what they need, and teaches them from the boat. I think this is a pretty genius move because they can still hear Jesus, but they can't crowd him anymore. So that's a win. Jesus teaches the people, and then he turns his focus to Simon. We can assume with a great level of certainty that Jesus wanted and intended to end up in this situation of being in Simon's boat with Simon, not just as a nifty solution for the crowds, but also because Jesus has something to say to Simon. So instead of telling Simon to go ahead and take him back to shore, he says, let's go deeper. And I think we can understand that Jesus means this in two ways with Simon. Let's go deeper out into the physical water. And let's go deeper out into the spiritual water. With Jesus, very often he starts with our natural circumstances and he uses the natural to display and deal with the supernatural and the spiritual. And so Jesus is going to use Simon's natural circumstances of being a fisherman who has worked all night without catching any fish to display Jesus' power and reveal to Simon who he is and who he's going to be to him. So Jesus tells Simon to go out to deeper water and to put out his nets for a catch. Simon says, Master, we've been working hard, fishing all night, caught nothing, but sure, if you say so. And he does what Jesus says. Notice that Simon calls Jesus Master here. So far, this is just a sign of respect, using the title that would be appropriate for a rabbi or a teacher during those times. This is interesting to me because we actually know that this isn't Simon's first encounter with Jesus or the miracles that he does. I'll dig into this a little bit more in the episode, but even just considering the verses at the end of Luke 4 right before this story, this is the same Simon whose mother-in-law was healed miraculously from her fever right in front of him. In any case, Simon continues to call Jesus Master here, which is relevant to the part of the picture that Luke wants to paint this transition from Simon's respect for a teacher to recognition of and being in service to his Lord and Messiah. Anyway, so Simon does what Jesus says, and they pretty much right away start to catch so many fish that the nets start to tear and break. Here's where Luke's account lets us know that someone else is in the boat with Simon and Jesus because it says they let down their nets. The text doesn't tell us who it actually is, because this is a story primarily about Jesus and Simon, but it's almost certainly Simon's brother Andrew, because we know from other sections of scripture that he is Simon's fishing partner, and he was also one of the first disciples called by Jesus. So yeah, Simon and Andrew miraculously catch a ton of fish and are so overwhelmed, both by the number of fish and the situation itself, that they signal their other partners, James and John, to come and help. So they come and help with this huge haul of fish, and now both boats are so full they're starting to sink. Can you imagine what this must feel like if you are any of these fishermen 
but especially Simon. You've been fishing all night, all night, without any success. You're probably sweaty and dirty and smelling of the ocean and old fish and the smell of your nets. You're upset and annoyed and frustrated that you've just spent a whole night fishing without catching anything, without providing for your family. And yet here comes Jesus, who basically disrupts you from wrapping up your night and going home. First, Jesus asks you to use your boat to teach his message, which means you have to sit in the boat and row the boat out and listen and wait until he's done. And if that's not enough, he then actually tells you to go out deeper and put your nets that you just washed out again. After you've already failed and you just want to go home. In this moment, I can imagine Simon being just kind of done with what's going on. But whatever he's feeling, he lets Jesus do his thing. And then right here before his very eyes is a miracle that can't be denied. A miracle that changes not only his circumstances, but his whole entire life and really the future of the Christian church. A miracle that tells Simon that Jesus not only saw the crowd, but saw him. That Jesus not only came to teach, but came to help and save him. And this whole realization, this whole combination of events, causes Simon to immediately fall down before Jesus and say what's really on his mind and heart in that moment. Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. I think we can probably relate to this response in a soul-deep way, can't we? We can see that Simon has finally made the connection of who Jesus is, who he must be, because he does not call him master here. He calls him Lord. Simon knows that the one who could do this miracle must be Lord. And to be in the presence of his Lord and to have seen such a wonderful miracle from him, building on what Simon has already seen and heard about, right? This is the moment where Simon's response is to repent is to understand the utter gap between who Simon is and who Jesus is. It's this same understanding that Job has when he finally meets and hears God face to face after all his hardships and struggles. Job, too, recognized the utterly holy and unbridgeable gap between himself and his Maker. And Simon has this same realization now, only now, That gap is no longer unbridgeable because Jesus is here specifically to be his and everyone's bridge to God. And so Jesus responds by telling Simon not to be afraid, for from now on, Simon will be a fisher, a catcher of people. The Expositor's Bible Commentary on the Old and New Testament says this about this moment. In view of Luke's emphasis on the kindness of God reaching out to embrace all humankind, This phrase signifies a beneficent ingathering of human fish. Indeed, here we see clearly again the message heralded by the angels at Jesus' birth, that he is good news of great joy for all people. Then, Simon, Andrew, James, and John leave everything to follow Jesus. I always reflect on this small sentence encapsulating this huge response. Jesus must have been just that compelling to cause them to do that. I know in my own life that I find Jesus to be the most compelling person possible. He's done incredible miracles in my life. And yet when I think about the idea of dropping everything that matters to me for the cause of Jesus, sure, I want to believe I would do that. 
But would I really in real life actually do that? I'm not sure. So kudos to the disciples for allowing Jesus to draw them in against all odds, against all responsibilities and perceptions and expectations of the culture of their time. And their faith would ultimately be rewarded by not only witnessing, but participating in the miracles and mission of Jesus. And by not only witnessing, but participating in the suffering of Jesus too as it is for us who follow Jesus today. Here are some additional thoughts and insights into this section before we move on. First, let's note that this scene involves many additional people, a crowd, Andrew, James, John, but the scene itself is primarily between Jesus and Simon. It is Simon's boat that Jesus uses. It is Simon that Jesus talks to and who talks to him back. Even at the end of the passage, when Jesus says, Don't be afraid, from now on you will be catching people. The Greek verbs used in this sentence are second person singular, which means Jesus is addressing Simon. Reference the commentary on Luke 5 verses 1 through 11 via workingpreacher.org. Remember, this is Luke who is telling a story, but it's also, and more importantly, God telling his own story through Luke. And this right here, is the story of how Jesus comes to call the disciple that will be known as the rock of the early church. Speaking of, we see that one of the usages of Simon's name in this text actually refers to Simon as Simon Peter. This is noteworthy because Simon actually hasn't been renamed to Peter yet by Jesus, which we discussed briefly in the genealogy episode that Jesus renamed Simon to Peter because Peter means rock. So it's not that Simon's name is already Peter or Simon Peter. But rather, Luke is doing this so we know, as the readers, that this is that same Simon, the one who is eventually renamed to Peter. Also, it's worth pointing out that there are similarities and differences between Luke's accounting of how these men came to be disciples and the other gospel accounts. Both Mark and Matthew include a similar account of how Simon came to be called as a disciple, but there are some differences. While the Gospel of John indicates that Andrew was the one who first told Simon about Jesus and doesn't mention anything about fishing at all. In John's Gospel account, Andrew hears John the Baptist refer to Jesus when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God! And so Andrew and another person, likely John himself, follow Jesus to see about him and where he's staying. And then Andrew goes to get his brother Simon, telling him that they have found the Messiah and introduces Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Peter. So what are we to make of all this? Honestly, I'm not quite sure, because I haven't had the time to dig into this too deeply. For sure, each of these accounts factor into this idea of Simon in particular being called to this role of disciple. But one thought is that they fall into different chronological points of Jesus' early ministry. If we follow this thought through, here's what it looks like. Jesus meets Simon for the first time in John chapter 1. Then Jesus actually calls, or confirms his call, on Simon through the accounts described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's still a little bit tricky because the Matthew and Mark story is a bit different from Luke's story. In Matthew and Mark, the nets are being cast out, not washed. And they don't make any mention of Jesus teaching a crowd. They leave a bunch of details out. Meanwhile, in Luke's account, The boats are ashore and the men are washing their nets when Jesus arrives. And there's a lot of other details, such as the teaching, 
us also the conversation that Jesus and Simon have. My thought is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all describing the same event, but Luke, being generally just more detailed in his accounting, and also wanting to provide evidence of Jesus being the Messiah, he gives greater detail and gives us the whole story as opposed to just that Jesus came upon the men with their nets, called them, and they dropped what they were doing to follow him. But, as I always say when we find these sorts of interesting questions, you don't need to take my opinion as the end-all be-all. I invite you to dig deeper into this and research it for yourself. I myself am going to do a little more digging because I'm still curious. Lastly, how about this interesting note I came across while studying this text? We all know about the Christian fish symbol that is often used to let people know visually that you're a believer of Jesus, right? I see it all the time on bumper stickers, coffee mugs, necklaces, you name it. Well, here's one idea of how that came to be, according to J. Carl Laney's article titled Fishing the Sea of Galilee in the Lexham Geographic Commentary on the Gospels. Four of Jesus' disciples were fishermen before they became followers of Jesus. Simon, renamed Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus was familiar with their work as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. When he called them as his disciples, he invited them to become fishers of men. The fish became a symbol in early Christian art because the Greek word for fish, ichthys, provides the initial letters of the words in an early Christian creed. The first letter, iota, is the initial letter in the Greek word for Jesus. The second letter, chi, is the first letter in the word for Christ. The third letter, theta, is the first letter in the Greek word for God. The fourth letter, epsilon, represents the Greek word for son. And the last letter, sigma, is the first letter in the Greek word for savior. Taken together, the letters in the Greek word for fish symbolize the message, Jesus Christ, God's son, savior. As it does today, the early symbol of the fish could be used to identify a believer in Jesus without the need for verbal communication. I'm not actually sure how true that is, but it's still pretty neat to think about that nonetheless. All right, so let's dive into the next five verses. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. One more time, let's zoom out and see what's happening here. Jesus is out and about somewhere, and a man with leprosy sees him. He falls face down and begs Jesus to make him clean. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him, says he is willing, and heals the man. Immediately the leprosy leaves him. Then Jesus does this strange thing and orders the man not to tell anyone what just happened. He tells him instead to go to the priest and offer what Moses commanded in the Torah, in the law, as a testimony to the priest. But, as we've seen already, even though Jesus wanted things to stay quiet, the opposite happens, and the news about him just spreads even more, to the point where large crowds are now coming to hear Jesus and be healed. Even so, 
Jesus often takes time out for himself to places where there are no crowds, no people, and he prays. All right, so this is just such an awesome story, and I'm just so excited to talk about it right now with you guys. We've got a man suffering from leprosy, which, if you've read the Old Testament, you get the real sense that leprosy is a big deal, because it is. Leprosy is a wasting disease that destroys flesh and is contagious on contact. This context might refer to leprosy as we understand it modernly, but it probably also includes other similar diseases of the time. So yeah, it's very unwanted, very bad, and of course, very isolating. It's no surprise that the people were afraid of such diseases and anything that would make them sick or unclean. So the reason the Old Testament makes such a big deal about leprosy isn't because it wants to shun people and make them feel outcast, but rather, the Lord makes such a big deal about taking care around leprosy and other diseases in the Bible, literally for his people's health. They didn't know how to have proper hygiene, how to keep distance, wash hands, stop the spread of disease during their time. They didn't have modern medicine or tools or knowledge. So the Lord himself gave them a bunch of guidelines to basically help them live longer and to live more healthfully. These guidelines did call out leprosy specifically and gave God's people instructions on how to deal with it. You can check out these instructions in full in Leviticus 13 and 14, but here's the rundown as taken from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Depending on the severity of the infection, person would be required to stay in isolation anywhere from seven days to indefinitely until the infection was gone and the person was considered and announced as clean again. The priest's role is significant, as shown in Leviticus 13, where it is the priest who announces whether a person is clean or unclean. A mention of a person being clean or unclean without an announcement of the priest pronouncing it is rare. Required actions of one pronounced unclean are that the diseased person must live alone outside the camp, wear torn clothes, keep his or her hair disheveled, cover his or her upper lip, and cry out, unclean, unclean, whenever they go somewhere. In order to be considered clean, the person must go to a priest. The official cleanliness ceremony includes cleaning of the clothes, shaving of hair, and a ritual cleansing. And additionally, at least one lamb, if the person was too poor for lambs, birds could be used as a substitute, and flour and oil must be given as an offering. So yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty heavy, right? It's for the safety of the community and for the common good, but still, it's such a difficult weight and burden to carry. I think we can relate to this a lot, actually, with what we all experienced together with COVID-19. How many people had to be isolated and alone while they suffered with this virus? As awful as that was, it was for the safety of others. And so it's the same here, that leprosy required a separation. So let's keep this all in mind as we consider the text. Here's a man with leprosy. Likely, he's all alone, wearing torn clothes, hair all a mess, and he's having to draw attention to himself by announcing he's unclean to the world around him. And this man, he sees Jesus. Instead of keeping his distance from Jesus as the law clearly tells him to do, he falls face down at his feet and begs Jesus to heal him. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, he says. This is one desperate man, because not only is he banking on Jesus to heal him, but he's also putting himself at risk for being punished for breaking the law. But this is also one faith-filled man. He's got no other option, but he believes that Jesus is the only option he needs. 
And this is also a clear nod to Jesus being our high priest. This man with leprosy is indicating through his words that Jesus can make him clean. So we can take this not only as through healing, but also actually giving him the status of being clean, which we just heard it's only a priest who can actually pronounce someone to be clean. So the man's faith pays off. Jesus is not only willing to heal and cleanse the man, but he actually reaches out and touches him. Think about that for just a moment. This man has, because of his condition, been deprived of human touch and contact for God knows how long. And Jesus could easily have healed him without any contact at all, with just a word from far away. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes close, and he heals not only the man's skin and body, but his heart too. He gives this man what he needs just as much, if not more, than healing. He gives him compassion, love, connection. That is our Jesus. So Jesus tells him that he is willing and immediately the man is healed with a single touch. But then Jesus, as we've come to expect by now, tells him not to tell anyone about what happened. And not only that, but Jesus actually wants the man to follow the law to the letter, the law we just discussed in Leviticus 13 and 14. Jesus wants the man to go to the priests and get them to pronounce him clean so that they can testify to the man's status in the lawful way so that he can be accepted again into his community. Even though Jesus is our high priest and will be recognized as such at the right time, Jesus still wants to do things literally by the book here. This is consistent with how Jesus has operated to this point, as we've discussed multiple times in Luke's accounting, and is consistent with what Jesus himself says, that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Of course, we see that despite Jesus' best efforts to fly under the radar, the news about him just spreads and grows. And now, more and more people, an untold number of people in this particular story, are coming to him to hear him teach and preach and to receive healing. This section ends with a note about how Jesus would withdraw to deserted places to pray. I think we can all understand that even the most extroverted of us need time and space sometimes, and Jesus in his humanity is no different. He needs time apart to recharge and regroup, and the most important way he does that is by spending time in prayer, connecting with his Father in heaven. That's absolutely an example we should follow in our own lives as well. No matter how busy we are, how chaotic life's demands can seem, prayer is what helps us hold it all together, puts things into perspective, gives us the power and strength we need to do what's in front of us because it connects us with our Father in Heaven. I'd argue the busier we are, the more time we need to spend in prayer. Martin Luther famously said that I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And while I don't think we need to follow that formula exactly, the sentiment stands as a solid one, and one that Jesus followed often. Okay, so here's some time for some real talk. I feel it heavy in my spirit that the Holy Spirit has something to say directly to someone's heart out there. Have you ever felt like you were the leper? That something about you was just so repulsive, so shameful, so unclean, that no matter what you did or didn't do, there was nothing that could change it. Nothing that could take away the permanent stain of it on your life. That everyone would be able to see right through 
whatever facade or wall you had put up, whatever barrier you had constructed so that no one would see the real you. If you have ever felt this way, the way I have felt this way, I pray this story encourages you. I pray these words hit deep into your heart the way our Holy Spirit desires, because Jesus doesn't see you the way you see yourself right now. Jesus sees the love of his life, the one he came to this earth to be near, to be next to, to touch, to heal. Jesus sees the one he died for, yes, but also the one he lived and lives for right now today. Jesus' death was but a moment in time, a moment that forever altered everything, but a moment nonetheless. Jesus' life is eternal, boundless, and filled with hope about you, faith in you, love for and with and because of you. This story of healing shows us that Jesus can take even the most outcast, the most shamed, the most shunned of us, and make us brand new, whole, clean, accepted. I pray you wouldn't walk, but run into his arms and let him heal you right now, this minute. You are loved, beloved of God. You are wanted, desired of God. You are not alone, held of God. You belong, child of God. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.